Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, powered by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we go on the water with some of the top athletes from three events, show skiing, barefooting, and everything in between. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back, everybody, to the Hit It Podcast. This is part two of my two-part series interview with Sammy Duvall. Now, Sammy details his journey through a career-ending injury that ultimately led to his retirement in this episode. He reflects on the past, the present, and the future of the sport. And he also sheds a lot of wisdom when it comes down to sponsorships and the direction of professional skiing. This is an extremely enlightening interview that you're not going to want to miss. Here's part two of my interview with Sammy Duvall. Well, that's a great segue to this next question, because when you got to where you got, I, I would assume there is, there's a thought there of thinking, you know, I put a lot of uh, training into this. I know probably a lot more knowledge than most of the competitors out there. I could seclude myself and try to keep all those secrets, or I open the door and I train every day against the best that's out there. And it sounded like early in your childhood, your dad kind of did that and said, hey, no, everybody come. We want everybody. And it created a competitive environment, which probably kept you really, really sharp. With that being said, some of your greatest jumping rivalries throughout the years, uh, being uh, a Bruce Neville, uh, Mike Hazelwood, Tell us about your relationship with those guys. Um, well, you know, very different. I mean, I think, um, you know, Mike Shalander, uh, he, he first came over from Sweden. He came and trained with me. He, you know, really didn't have anywhere else to go. And, uh, I mean, I look at uh, his jumping progression while he was with me. He was, he was an excellent jumper um, and for a, a big guy. Again, a lot like Mike, but taller, you know, super big frame, a lot of power. You know, Bruce, more like me, uh, more laid back, smaller frame, uh, compact power technique. And so there were there was a lot there. Right. And, you know, the good news is through those it was many years that we did this. But through those years, there were there were a lot of guys that lived and trained me with me that it helped their career. And they were super appreciative. And at the same time, there was a lot of guys that trained with me that weren't appreciative. And looking back on it, you know, I was kind of like, that's, that's pretty bad, you know, but, but in the end, you know, it's like, keep your enemies close is what it really came down to. And I was guilty of coaching these guys during the weekends. I'd be on the dock waiting my turn and I'm giving them, you know, coaching. So maybe not my best uh, plan, but uh, we had a great time. Was that, was that ever a question by your sponsor, Sammy? Why are you on the dock? Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, that's one of the things, I mean, I look back at it when I left Jackson and ended up down in Windermere that first year, Joel McClintock and Mick Neville and I, and so you had arguably the three best overall skiers in the world. And Joel was, you know, the world overall champion. And I mean, we had some amazing days of, you know, it was a giant private lake and no one was around. And if people could see, you know, uh, it would be like the best event there is every day. You just knockout rounds, right? Uh, and that really, um, I enjoyed that. Joel got hurt and 
core part of his hamstring attachment had to retire. Uh, so then there were two, but then through the years, a lot of the Australian guys came over and trained with me and uh, Nick and I remained friends, you know, uh, for a long time. So it was, it was good. And, you know, that's as a group traveling, uh, everybody wants to win. Right. But at, at the end of the day, we were all, for the most part, everybody were friends and got along and wanted to see everyone do well. So here's a tough question. Who was your toughest competitor along the way? Well, there were a lot of them. There were definitely a lot of them. And, it, you know, it depends by the event, right? If I had to say tricks, and only because, well, two things, uh, you know, we were in juniors together all the way up was Corey Picos. And you know, that guy is intense, intense, intense. And nails, I mean, tough, tough, tough competitor. And not many people know it, but, you know, from, you know, in juniors, he was at the top or right around the top, but, you know, he's, he spent the time and he really exploded and he was doing things that people just hadn't seen. Right. So you're scrambling, trying to catch up with Corey. And so I always thought when we were at worlds, that's the guy I want to be in the bunker with. Right. I mean, he was yeah. just fierce competitor and, you know, I would say um, the toughest for me because it changed everything was uh, Mike Hazelwood. Right. When I, after I got, after I lost so many rounds to Mike uh, on his last jump, I decided I want to be the guy that can be one and done. Mm -hmm. I want to go and get it done the first one and just be over it. So I had a lot of wins sometimes in very bad conditions where it's just like, all right, we're going to go, we're going to drop the hammer right from the beginning and get it done and pack this up and get out of here. And so it, it, all those battles that we had really prepared me for the kind of that mindset in the future. And he was just that guy that, God, I mean, he was late on the first two and he wasn't there. Somehow he would go later. And, you know, I lost by inches and feet and it was just on and constant. I talked to Wade about that and he's like, you know, that's the same thing for me with Andy. I mean, that's, you know, they had that battle going and just makes it, makes it super tough. So uh, if I had to say, I probably had the most battles with Mike and and in the fact of living with him and training with him, you know, I saw that every day, you know, so it wasn't like it was some surprise. I mean, I'm seeing it. I'm, I'm in the boat, you know, why can't you do it? Why can't I fix it? So I finally figured out the formula, you know, to get there. Well, and when we do think of Sammy Duvall, we think of the one and done, you know, top seed comes out there, first jump, nails it. When you're having these tournaments week in, week out, like on the pro tour, I'm sure that comes with a psychology for the rest of the field. It's like, oh, here comes Sammy. He's going to do it in one. It's like it starts to, I, I would think, and it, it becomes a, a competitive advantage for you. Well, you know, that's one of the things I learned from my sister, Camille. I mean, she was a okay three event skier. She was an awesome slalom skier and jumper. And I think she won five consecutive year in pro tour slalom wow. which is pretty amazing. You know, there were a lot of really good girls there. But, you know, I was like, I wanted to, like, be the technician, the kind of quiet fly behind the, you know, the radar, but I would cut your heart out and feed it to you if I could. That's, <laughs> that's me. I wasn't going to tell you that, but that's my mindset. And Camille was, like, angry, I'm going to run through a brick wall, and I'm winning. And she exuded, like, get out of my space she did amazing. Right. I mean, she mentally, I mean, she was so far ahead of everybody before they even took the first pass. And I think that was the foundation that made her such a 
a great champion. So I saw that she's two years, four years older than me. So I was firsthand watching that happen and, you know, kind of set the stage for what I, what I knew and uh, could do. Technology. Technology has changed so much throughout the years. We've touched on it briefly at parts of this interview, but talk to us about inboard, outboard motors, making those adjustments over the years, competing internationally, and then more domestic behind different boats. So going to Europe, going to Australia, going to Japan, you know, all those uh, really forced us to adapt. Even we had events in Greece and Jamaica, and a lot of times you were going from boat to boat from weekend to weekend. And back, um, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the correct craft had a definitive, for example, it had a definitive trough in between the wakes. And the master craft was more of a mound. And so hitting that trough and kind of dropping down through it and out the other side, completely different feel, completely different timing, your depth perception, your speed to the base of the ramp, your distance to the slalom buoy, all those things were different. And then, you know, in Australia for the longest time, Moomba was, there were no nautiques, you know, there were outboard boats. We were training with outboard boats with foot pedals uh, instead of hand throttles. I I don't want to sound like an old fart, but it was just very different. And then, you know, the the main boat in Europe for the longest time was Bosch, which was this big giant mammoth thing with like a a hand throttle, you would twist it, um, big, big wakes. And so, you know, a lot of times we might go to Europe three times in a season, so you were going between a Bosch and a Mastercraft and an Antique and then a Supreme, you know, there, there were just a variety of boats that added to that and no cruise control, right? So yeah. um, cruise control was a big, big factor. A, a lot of uh, disagreements through the years without cruise control in a negative way. We had, uh, you know, no, no perfect pass, uh, no slalom deviation video. And one of the hardest things to adjust to, especially when there were so many good skiers in jumping, was not only really where you were in the draw, right? Because you never wanted to be like after Carl Roberts or after Bob Lapointe, you know, because it was so hard on the drivers to adopt from a guy that's, the, you know, there was a period where the boats just didn't have enough power for them. They were at a disadvantage. And so if they're, you know, at 210, 230, they're dropping in. Carl was an excellent jumper, uh, you know, dropping in and, you know, rocking the boat, dragging it out and pulling it down. And then you come behind them at 165 pounds and you want all the power from the wakes to the ramp, not from the turn to the wakes. What they need, you know, the driver's kind of reeling the, the best. And, you know, they know it um, and they did their best to adapt to it. But then you're going, well, okay, if Jack Walker is going to do this, uh, you know, what's their, what are they thinking? So I need to do this because he's going to do that. And then maybe you're wrong. You know? Yeah, no. And, and that's a totally different element. We don't even think about is the skill of a driver through those years and who you would draw and what boat you would be behind. There's so many factors that would play into that. I was just thinking about how important probably that overall background, especially for jump would come into play that you could make those changes on the spot in a big tournament? Well, you didn't have a choice, right? I mean, um, you know, slalom was always head-to-head. And there was a period where Bobby Long and um, Les Todd really, they, you know, they matched up really well. So there was a lot, a lot of periods where there were two really good slalom guys together, and you could be good either way. And then you got, you know, 
there were several good drivers that were great in jumping. So you just never, you never knew. And, and then, you know, when there was the nationals, you would go and you would get drivers that you'd never seen, which is what, you know, everyone else goes to the nationals. You might be a guy in your region, but if we're on the pro tour or we're in Europe, we would have never been behind those guys. And, and so that was always a challenge for everybody, not, not just the athletes, but the drivers themselves for sure. When you look at the athletes today and the technology, uh, we had an interview a couple of weeks ago with Marcus Brown and Marcus was talking about Mike Siderhout and how Mike was able to really break down the fundamentals of skiing and physics of what certain movements would do and cause the skis to do. I would assume as you sit back and you look on the shore, from the shore at the skiers now, there are similarities of what you were doing during your career, but there's also differences and the way they approach the ramp, obviously the equipment uh, playing a large role in that. But do you see anything different from a technique standpoint uh, today that maybe you wish you would have thought of then? You know, I, I don't think the changes of the technique that they're using today, let's just say, and I mean, it is mind boggling to me what's happening in slalom skiing and with the perfect pass and, uh, and you know, how the cruise control system works zero off and, you know, where a 140-pound guy can do, you know, as good as a 200-pound guy. And so that's like, that's exciting because that's an equalizer to me in a lot of ways. Jumping is so different today. I don't know that it would really factor in uh, back the way it used to be. I mean, obviously having your own settings for jumping, having the, the new rope with the stretch, those are all factors. But the biggest factors are, having the ramp open, uh, more open uh, is a big plus. And obviously having it longer and less angle uh, is, you know, that's just game changing. So uh, those things uh, back in the day would have been uh, welcome, but, you know, hey, records are, are meant to be broken and, and with time comes technology. And uh, I get asked a lot about skiing on big skis. Do you, know, do, do you think, how far would you go, you know, what do you think? How would you do? You know, I'll preface it because I, you know, I'm a, I think I should win all the time. Right. So I think I would go <laughs> further. I think I would do better, but no one will ever know. Right. So, um, and I don't mean that in any disrespect to any other jumper. Uh, I just never had that opportunity. So sure. I would have liked to have given it a go for sure. Looking back throughout your career, if you came to a certain spot, let's say that there was a fork in the road, was there a fork in the road where you would ever say, man, I wish I would have done something a little bit different than I chose to do. And would that play out a little bit different? Well, there's a lot of times in my life, I look back and say, Hey, I should have, there were a lot of times where I could have gone down the wrong path in life that would have prohibited me from having the success that I did in, in a sport where you have to, you know, give it your best and your, your total focus. So I could have made a lot of mistakes that way. And life, yeah, you know, our family's big believers and life is sliding doors. And so, you know, sometimes the door closes and you think it's the end of the world, but then another one slides open and that's the way we view life. And so um, I, I don't think, I mean, I'm sure I have some regrets along the way. Absolutely. You know, I, I wish I'd never gotten hurt where I had to retire at the age of 35. I mean, that wasn't in my plans at all. I mean, Retirement wasn't even discussed. I thought, you know, I would probably be able to have another five years. I mean, I turned pro when I was 15. Last year was 35, 20 years. That's great. 
but considering the shape I was in at the time and where I was in my life and career, I really felt like I, I had more time than uh, the guy cut short. So that's a bitter pill to swallow even today. When you look at, look back at that time and you're getting, you know, into this decision mode of retirement and uh, I mean, uh, assuming like, well, maybe I could come back, but if I come back, it's going to be super hard. Or was it just simply that door is sliding shut and I need to figure out which new door is sliding open? I don't know if you know much about the, the injury that I suffered or the time frame and kind of what took place, but I... Uh, had been in California training for several weeks for a few different tournaments on the West Coast. And my wife's from Sacramento. So we were staying there training at Bell Aqua. And uh, our daughter was just a new baby. I mean, newborn. And so Austin and Lauren were with us. And we flew to Chicago for an event. Um, they had the Pro Tour event there, I think, maybe three or four years in a row. And you know what? I just a rode backwash wave at the base of the ramp and I had a really hard fall. And not knowing, but I had a what's called a, a brain slosh where you hit the water so hard or in auto accidents where your brain sloshes to the brain casing and it broke a bone in my inner ear. And there's three bones in your inner ear and the middle one holds uh, all these crystals and aligning and that is your gyroscope. Uh, and it also controls your eye muscles. And so I was knocked unconscious and I was in the hospital and then, you know, we made it home and I uh, went through, you know, recovery and then um, long story short, really struggling in the following year and, and jumping where I was, um, you know, I'd, I'd go to the, pro, excuse me, the pro tour stops and in the mornings, knock it out of the park, but in the afternoons and evenings, I didn't have any balance, <clears throat> knew my equilibrium was off, but wasn't sure why. So I flew to Ireland for the Golden Falls Jump Classic, just about crashed every time. Mm -hmm. came back to Orlando and took my son swimming and I was dipping his skis in the water at the end of the dock. And he was just seven, eight. And he pushed me from behind, just joking around. I did a flip into the water. And when I came to, I was in, at the bottom swimming mm -hmm. down into the mud. And I realized I could have just drowned, you know, right here with my son. And so the next day I had to fly to the tour finals in Portland and I was doing uh, Oakley, one of my sponsors, having a golf outing, played golf like crap, terrible, almost crashed in the first round, and, or I did crash in the first round. And I, it was so rough in my eyes, I couldn't focus on the ramp. It led me down this bizarre path to find out I had what's called a vestibular fistula, which is a broken bone in your inner ear. And mm. um, it's in a lot of ways, it's an injury that people don't ever recover from. And uh, I had the first surgery done uh, at the time and total bed rest for six weeks, no flying for three months. And then the first day that I went back out to ski, the repair uh, in my, it was like a giant patch or a little patch over the top of the bone. It just blew off when you're slalom skiing, you lean and pull. That's called the salvo where you blow out and it um, lifted the patch up. And it was weird because when I was in recovery, all of a sudden one day I was watching TV and all the focus came back and everything was great. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then when the repair blew, I walked back inside and my death perception was off and everything was crazy. Mm -hmm. So let me down multiple ear surgeries, a long, long recovery. And the Thursday, I was still struggling, but doing it as long as I've done it, I was kind of overcoming it. And the Thursday before I was leaving for the pro tour stop, my first one back, 
I, the water was really smooth on my landing. I misjudged it and broke my ankle. Mm. Uh, and so <clears throat> pretty serious ankle injury, um, torn cartilage. And I, I spent, you know, six, eight months trying to recover. And, and it was just like, no, just not meant to be, you know, it's just be happy with what you have. And, mm. um, there'll be another door that opens up and, you know, enjoy the good memories and just keep moving. Well, that's a great segue to this next question. And one thing you've been able to do that not many people have been able to do in our sport has been an entrepreneur inside the sport and outside the sport. And all along the way, you've, you've either been branding with companies, coming out with your own skis, even promoting things like Hydroslide back in the day. I would, I would think at this period of your life, at least, you know, through everything that you've done from an entrepreneurial standpoint, that's a path you could take. Well, you know, being an entrepreneur in a lot of ways is just different. It's not for everybody. And there's times it's definitely, I wonder what, what I was doing. Right. Um, but again, coming from an individual sport and, you know, you have yourself to blame for your failures and you have yourself to enjoy your, your successes. And the same thing can happen in, in business. The only difference is, uh, there's, and I've learned the hard way, there's so many outside influences of things you can't control versus as an athlete, you can control how you train, where you train, who you train with, the products you train with, you make all the decisions. Uh, an entrepreneur, you know, they can shut the world down for COVID. We, yeah. we can, you know, there's this, you know, all, all of a sudden we're not going to ensure certain things. It, the list goes on. So it really keeps you, keeps you on your toes. But from a sponsor standpoint, I was really, really fortunate, you know, and I, my, my dad was a pretty smart guy and he did a couple of things that really set me on my path down with the endorsements that I had. And Camille had some great endorsements. I mean, she was with O'Brien skis forever and Mastercraft and, you know, she was there and Andy was their guy and Camille was the girl. And, you know, so we were very fortunate, but what he did was he's like, Hey, you know, I want you to take this money that you were going to pay Sammy. And if you think he's worthy of being in your ads, I want you to run ads. And so we would, in the first few years, you know, maybe, you know, 30% of what I was going to receive in salary went to marketing. And so you might, you know, you're too young to remember, but, you know, I was like 16 and, you know, I was, I had, I was Mastercraft ads. I was, you know, uh, ski worm ads. I was, and so through that process, you know, I, I was able to really end up with the best of the best in sponsorships that opened a lot of doors along the way. And then I was fiercely loyal to the people that uh, believed in me and, you know, Rob Shirley and, and Mastercraft in the early days and Dennis Kidder. And so, and I believed I had the best product or I was with people that said, we'll make you the best product. When Dennis Kidder, we were building jump skis. His wife was the jump ski builder. You know, he's like, I know who to go talk to to make the thing you want. <laughs> My wife, <laughs> you know, so, and, and, you know, look, um, from, you know, I argued with plenty of skiers through the years about sponsorships uh, to no avail. You know, I, I, I tried, it, I believed I could help people make it better, but that ended up being a fight that, that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, I would tell the skiers today, Look, if you want to get paid for something, don't do it for free. Uh, and that's exactly what happened throughout my career is that 
all the skiers would do stuff for free or for a photo incentive on a magazine, which doesn't mean dirt. Um, and their theory was, well, you get, you know, you're getting all the money. You're the one that is the face of whatever. So I just have to get what I can get. And I said, no, that's not necessarily the case. But when you're willing to do it for free, why should someone pay you? Right. And, you know, that's Set the precedent that that is. I mean, when I was with Oakley in sports marketing, they had Mark McGuire, they had Barry Bonds, and they weren't paying those guys, but those guys were making tens of millions of dollars. Right. Well, you know, they were paying me. They were paying in Lance Armstrong when he was starting. They were paying a lot of uh, which became great athletes. And I was with Oakley for almost 20 years and never even thought about a different eyewear company. So it, back in the day, that's a lot of what happened. And I would just tell the athletes today, I mean, you have social media, you have a lot, you know, you don't have TV, but uh, you can't go take money one week and no money the next week and, you know, get one sponsor for a photo incentive and then expect another sponsor to pay you. That's just never going to work. Wow, that's great advice. I'm sure a lot of people will be tuning in for that one. Well, uh, they, may not like hearing it. they may not like hearing it, but I believe that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah, no, and uh, and that's and that's been, I think, probably for another day and another conversation, the, the, a really difficult time for the current athletes as social media is that yet this free platform which you put all your content out of there and you're totally exposed with no dollars coming back to your pocket. Um, you know, there's a line there that you know at some point you got to eat and you got to pay the entry fee to the next tournament. Well, and you know, I think a, a, a great learning experience for me was, I mean, in, during our period, a lot in the pro tours and stuff, it, it became a lot about uh, your entry fees, right? And the cost of the entry fees. And so um, that was kind of all, we've been there, you know, we, we, we had to do it. But when I was with Coors Light, or sorry, when I was with um, O'Neill Wetsuits and O'Neill Clothing, and then their marketing guys, a really smart guy, he's still in the surf industry, pretty, pretty progressive. He got together with Coors Light. And at that time, the Pro Tour was the Budweiser Tour, and then it was a Mick Ultra Tour. And he's like, hey, I've got this stable of guys and girls, athletes. How about we form a team that's Coors Light, Team O'Neill? And I don't know if you've ever seen any. Yeah, I've that. seen those wetsuits. Yeah. You have the picture of the jet, you said. Yeah, right? got the, the jet. And I think that, let, let, me, let me see if I can go back in my memory. I think that's a purple and yellow wetsuit. Yes, is it, it is. Yeah, yes. okay. Jan was flying pretty fast, by the way. So, <laughs> um, but so the marketing team, they got together and they, they said, okay, and it was Lucky and Bob and Camille and me and um, Susie Graham. And, and we had this, you know, six, uh, six or seven athletes that were on this team. And originally we, we, we go into these events and um, it was just pure ambush mar you know, marketing. I mean, we're in town for a Budweiser event, but team O'Neill Coors Lights in, in town at, uh, uh, you know, at this bar signing autographs and, you know, pr predominant location on your wetsuits. Hey, it was all fair. I mean, it, it, it is what it is. Um, but we did that for uh, three or four years and it was just great added income. I mean, because our, our marketing guy at O'Neill said, Hey, I've got, you guys deserve it. We're going to tag in You're, you're going to get more exposure. And they're going to pay you as well. Wow. And so it was just like, you know, a win-win. And of course, the Budweiser and Anna, Anna Hazard Bush weren't happy, but it's war in marketing. And uh, yeah. 
and you're getting paid. It kind of opened up a lot of people's eyes to what could be. Well, what's so interesting, Sammy, about your career is you were at the peak, you were on this ride at the time that water skiing was really, really in mainstream. I mean, ESPN and and all sorts of publications. And, uh, you know, like you were saying, people would come up to you in the airport. They want to know where you're going to be skiing next week. Having lived through all that, and in retrospect, where is the future of water skiing going or where should it go and water sports in general? Well, that's a really hard question. <laughs> it's loaded. Yeah, you know, it. look, at the end of the day, in a large part, what we had fell apart for a few reasons. The success of all that momentum. One was the athletes unable to stick together and agree to how we would do things and what was a conceivable about, you know, what should prize money be? And if we're going to accept prize money, then why should you go ski for free when someone's not going to pay you? Those were, uh, and there were several people that tried to help along the way. You might remember when they had Pro Beach Volleyball and there was a guy by an agent by the name of Leonard Amato and Leonard Amato was Shaq's agent uh, when he first turned pro. Uh, his girlfriend played Pro Beach Volleyball, and he set up the Pro Beach Volleyball Tour. He came and talked to all the athletes. Carl Bears actually knew a contact, and he's like, yeah, I'll come tell you what we did. And he got in a room with everyone. He's like, number one, you have to stick together. And if you won't stick together, it'll never work. He had several other things. But number one happened. The athletes didn't stick together, so it never worked, just like he said. And he was speaking from experience. and. Uh, you know, there were a lot of athletes that, you know, that, that just was bad, right? So they're the athletes of today and the last decade, uh, and even slightly before that, are, are trying to get over that as through no fault of their own. But that's how sponsors were lost for the tour. That's how, at one point, two tours were competing in the same cities, mm. one in Dallas, one in Fort Worth, and athletes were skiing on both we, you know, both tours on the same weekend, all for personal gain, nothing for the betterment of the sport at all. And so those, you know, things like that have happened. At the highlight of the tour, I can remember seeing a report that Mastercraft sent me that did media name recognition of products or people from Hot Summer Nights. Coors Light was number one. I was number two, Camille's number three, Mastercraft, and Bob LaPointe. Wow. Um, so they said, like, hey, you're more recognizable than the brand of the boat. You should do more with this. I, I'm not saying that in a bragging sense. That just, like, you should do more. And so they have that platform today. It is social media. It is different. In the perfect world, what you need is TV. It always comes down to TV and impressions and how many people you can reach. So I see a lot of not only water skiers, but uh, athletes in different sports um, doing really progressive things and including the college athletes now since the rules finally changed for their benefit. Um, and, you know, like barstool sports hiring yep. your athletes right, left and center. And so, you know, there's there's no stone that should be left unturned. But however you can get positive impressions through whatever platform that is, um, you need to get it. Um, and then you should be paid for it and you shouldn't do it for free. Well, and I don't know how much you are in tune with the conversation. I think this first started in wakeboarding, 
but in wakeboarding there was the competitive scene and then there was the scene of which you're just trying to get a cool shot or a cool run for a magazine or a video it was almost two different career paths yes looking back on your generation it was all about the competition who could make it to the top of the podium that seems to be have be changing or has changed where we you know is it for the sake of social media of just getting the shot or is it the sake of winning and trying to get to the top of the podium what do you think about that conversation are people less competitive today as they once were well i think there's a space for everybody let's just say you want to be uber competitive and you want to be number one and you're willing to grind it out and that's it and that makes you happy you can do it but there's the opportunity to do the other thing and I, I can remember back if you follow, you know, my businesses now are in surf, you know, I'm, I'm a retail clothing store guy and I, I have relationships with all the surf companies it, it, today, even Oakley that I had, you know, 30 years ago and, and a lot of friendships in the sport. But I can remember when Kelly Slater, the best surfer of all time um, from right here in Florida, and we were at Surf Expo and they were announcing the first million dollar contract. And Kelly Slater got a you know million dollar contract from Quicksilver, and I think at the time he was like sixteen, maybe seventeen, wow. and the whole place you know was a buzz. But I was working for different board short companies. One was called Catch It. You know, I was with O'Neill Clothing for a while. No fear, I had a variety of clothing. But so I spent a lot of time with guys that were on the World Surf League or in different levels of the surf contest. And um, there's some great surfers. Uh, Rob Machado's the guy's got crazy hair. He's super cool, uh, amazing style. He he was a competitive surfer and just like, yeah, this is not for me. And they were able to go to exotic islands around the world and shoot pictures for surf magazines and videos and movies, which they're still doing. And so if you look at surf and, you know, a lot of these guys, they're making very big money from the clothing companies and they and surf is such a culture that they can really have an impact very easily and yet there's the world surf tour which very difficult to make it to a grind like none other where you're going all over the world it never stops it sounds amazing looks amazing i imagine it's very very hard right why people fall off of that uh, like mick fanning took you know took a break for the last three years but then they'll go to some unique island or place where they want to contest and they have super skills that can do amazing things and still make a great living in doing so. Or now going to the big wave surf contest. Shane Dorian, which was a great surfer, and his career was kind of over and he's just tackled big waves and now he's one of the best in the world over the last four or five years. So there's a lot of ways if you're young and you still have the body for it to reinvent yourself. But it's not, you know, there's there's a space for everybody. I don't think you have to be one or the other. Wow, love that answer. Well, Sammy, this is the hundredth anniversary of water skiing. What does the centennial of water skiing mean to you? Well, it's a tough one, right? Um, I've been thinking thinking about that because I think I heard when you guys asked me to be on. I said, oh, I saw where Freddie was on, so I listened to part of Freddie's interview and I, I heard it, you know your your questions with him. And this is not meant the wrong way. I'm this is just the way I see it. Like I look back and I go, I can remember having the water skier. My dad had the collection when I was little, the covers of, you know, Jimmy Fleet Jackson, Liz Allen, Ricky McCormick, you know, I'm going early seventies, you know, late sixties, early seventies. Um, and so to think it's been that long 
is pretty amazing, right? To get to this point um, and the evolution of the sport. And on the other hand, you know, what our sport's never been very good at is keeping our treasures that are part of the sport in the sport. And I say that like Wayne Grimmage was my hero. And I thought that's who I wanted to be, right? But all of a sudden one day he's injured and the next day he's kind of out. I look through the years and no sense in going person by person, but you know, I think for the betterment of the sport, it would be, uh, there has to be a way to keep the top people that have gone through it and could help somehow involved in the sport. And one person's not gonna move the big mountain, right? It's, it's bigger than that. Today's athletes are trying a lot of things like the, the four event overall contest. I mean, that's really what you need. You need more people trying to get skiing back to where the dominance it once was. And, you know, part of that is I did a lot of boat shows for years. I mean, I used to travel 30 weekends a year between contests and boat shows. And so during that period, a lot of people bought, parents bought boats that watched us ski. And then I met their kids and then they went to college. And then it just kind of this decades of moving away from it. And it's got to be a way so that the top guys today are still in the sport and there's people helping and support. And so I look back and say, it's amazing. It's been a long time, but it's sad that we're on this trajectory where you have these amazing athletes and they just don't have the places to go and show the world what they can do. Yeah. I mean, they have some, but you certainly should have more. So I don't mean it as a Debbie Downer. I just, that's kind of the way I see it. Well, we're on a good start to have you on the Hit It podcast. So <laughs> we're, we're going to bring on the Bobble Points, the Crystal Points, all nice. of those guys that um, can add to the conversation to keep that going. Looking back, what is your favorite memory? Oof. You know, there were a lot of good ones. Uh, I can, I would say uh, winning the Masters when I was 16, that was pretty pretty cool because, you know, there was no junior masters and I'd always wanted to get there. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just like, that was cool. A lot of pro tour stories, a lot of events that, uh, ended good, bad, uh, indifferent, you know, that those are memories that go back forever. That's a lot of stories, a lot of time. Right. But then, you know, I think the, the telling one for me is the 87 worlds, I like, as I said, I think about it almost every day, not purposefully. It just pops up in my memory bank. Right. Wow. And, um, uh, because I, I really didn't think I could do it. And I think to overcome that and, and succeed in it and people like yourself talking about it today, uh, it was pretty impactful for the sport and super impactful in my life for sure. Well, one, one last question as we get ready to wrap up. The Masters is at the end of the month. You won that tournament 13 times. Do you ever get to May and go, man, I should be in Pine Mountain, Georgia. I should be doing something. <laughs> well, you know, I used to. And uh, what, when my son started playing competitive tennis, uh, all the biggest tournaments are on every holiday. So uh, Easter, Memorial Weekend, Labor Day, July 4th, all those are in there. So where it really hit me uh, was going to a lot of tournaments at <laughs> every holiday uh, at the biggest tournaments for a week uh, around the country. And uh, it always brought back a lot of memories. And, you know, I saw my dad 
competed. It wasn't the Masters, but competed Callaway Gardens when he was um, when he was skiing. So I was there when I was and Camille and I were both really young, and so to have that, um, you know, have those memories there, uh, it's uh, it's good. And I know everyone always looks forward to it to get there. So it's uh, it's the uh, hard place to ski, but super exciting with the crowd in the water with you for sure. Awesome. Well, Sammy, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I'd like to give you a handoff to anybody you would like to think or uh, promote your businesses and what you're doing and where people can find you. Uh, well, uh, first off, I guess I, I would like to thank, um, you know, a couple of people, obviously my parents, uh, my wife, Susan, who was my travel companion, but also my coach uh, down the stretch for many, many years and my family, Austin, Lauren, fortunate to, to compete with Camille all those all those years as well. And there's a, a lot of people that helped me along the way, but, you know, I still miss, uh, I've been at the world's being able to see, um, Les Todd and a lot of the judges, uh, you know, Nikki Lee, uh, thanks to all the judges through all those years, because, you know, the real competitors, we didn't always run cool. We ran hot, uh, and we had more than our share of clashes. Um, and it's, it was different then because, we were all seeing each other and living in the same hotel week after week after week, you know, just a different city. Um, so we all became friends and I don't see those people uh, anymore. So, I, you know, I, I miss them to say the least. And then for me personally, um, I'm looking at trying to open more retail stores right now. You know, the, all the, uh, I was unfortunate enough to be trying to open stores where a lot of the, the uh, riots were taking place when things were <laughs> locking down during COVID. And so we have our store in Disneyland um, called Curl Surf out in Anaheim. So if you're ever out of Disneyland in Anaheim, stop in and see me. And then people write for me from time to time. But if you want to send me an email, it's Sammy at SammyDuval.com, two L's. And uh, I always try to answer uh, any requests that I can along the way. And um, yeah, and if you ever want to talk again, uh, I still got a lot, of, a lot of stories in the memory bank I can share. I'm sure we're going to take you up on that offer. <laughs> Sammy, thanks so much for joining the Hit It podcast. This has been unbelievable. Like I said, a childhood dream to sit down and interview you here today. And um, good luck with everything you're doing. And um, yeah, we're here. All right. Thank you. Have a great uh, weekend at the Masters. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening and come back to catch future episodes as we chat with water ski legends and current stars of each of the sports disciplines as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of water skiing. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida. We'll see you next time. <laughs>